see that uh, there's quite a lot in there. And uh, the phone numbers have been beamed on the screen. Uh, so all you need to do is send a text message to any of those two numbers, and uh, you will uh, be told the nearest point where you can get uh, these magazines. They are circulated to all our major towns within Zambia, to sister churches, and consequently you can get your copy there. Uh, they go for, for 15 kwacha, by the way, 15 kwacha, in case you're already thinking in terms of uh, the price. Thank you very much. With uh, that out of the way, please turn with me to Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians 1. I begin reading from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then that little phrase there, in love. I'll mention something about it before we go too far into the sermon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again we draw near to you. Thank you that it has pleased you through various generations to secure your word for us that today we might hear it read and preached. We ask, O oh Heavenly Father, that you will speak to each one of us, both those of us who've made it into this auditorium and our many friends who are hearing from home. Be with us, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brethren, we have recently begun a new Sunday morning series of messages um, in this epistle by Paul to the Ephesians, and I am intentionally calling this series Celebrating the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. Celebrating the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. We have seen that this phrase is one that is found in chapter 3 of uh, this particular uh, epistle, where the Apostle Paul refers in fact, to the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I've said again and again that the phrase unsearchable is not suggesting we cannot search out these riches, but rather we cannot completely exhaust them. And we noted also the last time, as we began looking at verse 3 downwards, that uh, what we have there 
<clears throat> is the way in which the Apostle Paul began to write. And he begins on a note of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in beginning that way, it ought to be a surprise if we knew the context in which he was. The Apostle Paul was writing from prison, and it was not a kind of prison where prisoners' rights have finally been fought for so that you have a comfortable stay in prison. Rather, these were typical Roman prisons. It's not the kind of place you would wish anybody to be in. And yet, the Apostle Paul <clears throat> begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this note of what I called amazing praise. <clears throat> Sorry. Looks like I need to clear my throat a few times. A note of amazing praise. Why? Well, we noted that it was because of three phrases, rather one phrase that is repeated three times, and it is the phrase bless. It was blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was speaking in terms of the indicative. This is something that is a matter of fact. God is blessed. We cannot add anything to the blessedness of God. But secondly, we noted the blessing in terms of who has blessed us. In other words, as a verb, this is what God has done in order for our lives to be utterly different. And then lastly, it was the same bless, but as a noun. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it is that every spiritual blessing that causes the Apostle Paul to burst out in praise to Almighty God. Because we deserve the opposite. We deserve every possible curse from Almighty God. And yet in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Well, what we begin to do today is to mine this um, great awe of blessings that we have from God. And that's what we begin to see from verse 4 downwards. You can notice uh, the little phrase at the beginning of verse 4, even as, or just as. In other words, this is something of the tremendous rich awe of blessing from Almighty God. I mentioned the fact that there is that little phrase at the end of verse 4, which we are looking at, and it is the phrase, in love. The individuals that have wrestled with, first of all, putting verses in this particular book we call the Bible, uh, had difficulties with where to begin and end these verses, primarily because normally the verses were related to sentences, which is obvious. 
You don't begin a verse in the middle of a sentence. However, the difficulty with Ephesians chapter 1 is that from verse 3 of this chapter all the way to verse 14, it's one sentence. The Apostle Paul was just talking, 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 talking. And therefore, it's, it was rather difficult to know, okay, where do we then indicate that a new thought is beginning? And here, the question was, is the love related to election or is the love related to predestination? Is the love related to him saying, okay, I'm choosing these people out of love, or is the love related to him saying, okay, this is where I want them to finally end out of love. And so you will notice that the individuals that were working with the scriptures and putting in the verses opted to make love part of election. And so that's how the verse 5 begins after in love. A lot of scholars afterwards have thought, no, 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 this love must be with predestination. And so they have put the full stop before love. It's up to you. You can decide. But ultimately, the point is God has loved us. Okay. So I will follow the sentence as it is in the ESV. And so in love will be with us next week. All right. So we're not finishing the entire verse. We will live out in love and handle it the following week. What I want to say very quickly is that the Apostle Paul, as we noticed last week, in opening up the blessings of God, opens them up trinitarianly. In other words, first of all, he talks about the blessings we have received from the Father, and then the blessings we've received from the Son, and then the blessings that we have received from the Holy Spirit. And so in this first part of the Apostle's praise, he begins with the Father, the role of the Father. And there, he begins with one aspect, and it was the electing work of the Father. Verse 4 again. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. May I say this as we rush ahead, that in appreciating the unsearchable riches of Christ, we must always begin from eternity, which most of us rarely do. When we are thinking in terms of praising God for what he has done for us, we inevitably begin with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me. Which is important, as I shall soon be bringing out. It is where you have the, um, the not only origin, but also the execution of the covenant of salvation. However, for us, 
we must always remember that this did not begin when Jesus Christ died on the cross. It goes before the world was created, which we'll look at in a few minutes. It goes with his election. So let's begin from there, looking at God's electing grace. Notice it began with him choosing us. Now, any Zambian by today should know what choosing looks like because we are going through an election process. And what's happening right now is that all the political players are seeking to convince us to choose them. They are either telling us what they have done in the past and therefore can do even better in the future, or they are telling us what they can do in the future because other people in the past have messed up. And this is the message we are constantly hearing. And whichever way you want to put it, what they are really saying is this, that in election or in choosing, you take some and leave out others. When you enter into that ballot box, you will have a number of names. I want to assure you that if you tick on two, it's called a spoiled ballot. You choose whether you love all of them or not. Finally, hopefully, before you enter into that box, you'd have made up your mind that this is the one I will choose. These I will leave out. That's what God did for us in the past, in terms of the beginning of our salvation. He did not choose all human beings, otherwise it would not be a choice. He chose some, he left out others. That's the only way you can understand this phrase. In other words, those of us who are believers now, those who've ever been believers, and by the time we get to the end of history, all who will ever become believers will be individuals who God initially chose that he was going to save. We have a few examples of this in the Bible. We have, for instance, Abram, before he became Abraham, was somebody who was chosen by God. We see that in Genesis and chapter 1, rather chapter 12, verse 1. We also know about Israel. In fact, in Israel's case, I actually want us to go there because this aspect of leaving out everyone else comes out clearly. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, I will come back to the word holy as we proceed, but let me say something about it immediately. That holy means separated for God. 
separated for God. That's basically what it means. So you are a people separated to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Notice this. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He goes on to say, it was not because you were more in number. In other words, he did not choose you thinking, wow, I'm choosing a people that are so many and consequently have made a good choice. It's like choosing a bank account where there's money and then you find that one has a billion, the other one has ten kwacha. I know which one you'll choose. So one with a billion because it makes you wealthy. And he's saying that's not the reason why he chose you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewer of, fewest of all peoples. We see the same in verse chapter 14 and verse 2. Chapter 14 and verse 2. I begin with verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. There it is again, separated for him. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So election is a privilege in the sense that there are so many others you would have chosen. He was not obligated to pick on you, yet he picked on you and left others behind. That's the way in which believers are also chosen. But notice the way it is phrased in our text. Even as he chose us in him. What does that phrase mean? In him. Well, it's primarily the fact that within the Godhead was an agreement, especially between the Father representing God and Christ representing humanity. And in that agreement, often referred to as the covenant of redemption, there was the aspect of the Father choosing a people, giving them to the Son, and then the Son was consequently to take on the complete obligation of these individuals, both in terms of the need for their righteousness and also to pay the price for their sin, and he accepted that and undertook it. So it is within that agreement in Christ that this choice has been made. And in that sense, therefore, Jesus becomes the foundation for that covenant because he signs for it and he also becomes the executor 
of that covenant. He finally fulfills it. Now, if we just quickly go to the high priestly prayer of our Lord, that's Acts chapter 17, you notice that that's exactly what Jesus refers to as he begins to pray to the Father concerning the fulfillment of his side of the bargain. John chapter 17 and verse 2. I'll begin from verse 1 for the purpose of context. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The crucial moment has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, notice that. There, there's no election. You've given him authority over everybody. But listen to this. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So he has authority over all of the human race from beginning to the end of history, but with respect to salvation. It is those whom you chose, those whom you have given him, those are the ones that he gives or bestows eternal life, having purchased it a few days from here. So then, what we have is the basis of who we are today. It is the foundation of election. And that in itself ought to blow our minds because it's not something we attracted to ourselves. It's not. Often you have uh, uh, kings like um, King Muswati of what used to be Swaziland. Now I think it's called Eswatini, who from time to time chooses new wives. And the way it is done is that they choose what you'd call the prettiest, the, the loveliest, the, the most beautiful of, of the maidens within the kingdom. And they prepare them carefully. No idea what they do in preparation, but by the time they are being presented before the king, as was the case in the days in which Esther was picked, they, they all look beautiful, lovely. If you were to choose, you probably would fail in terms of how lovely they are. But king, you must choose. So finally, he chooses. Let's call it the best among the best. It wasn't so with us. You can see someone who's hoping to choose a wife in the future feeling the pressure. <laughs> For us, he chose the worst among the worst. There was no loveliness in us to attract us to him. 
He chose us based purely on the basis of grace and gave us to his son. When did he do this? The Bible tells us that it was before the entire universe came into existence. Back in our text. The Bible says there, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. A foundation of the world. Now, that, that phrase is meant to say to us, that it was before we came into existence. It was before we did any good or bad. He chose us. In other words, we, we, we go beyond Genesis 1 verse 1, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We go past that beginning. Before earth was created, before heaven was created, before anything existed, Angels included, when there was only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, God planned creation. He planned history. He planned our salvation. He chose us. He chose us. That's the point at which we came into existence in his own mind. And therefore, our experience today of salvation is not when God began to think in terms of choosing. He already did that in eternity past. Our experience of salvation is a fruit of that which God had already decreed. Look with me quickly at uh, 2 Timothy, the very first chapter, and verse 9. I'll begin from verse 8. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 9. The Bible says there, therefore, do not be ashamed. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, strictly speaking, he is a prisoner to the Romans, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now listen to this. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. That's not why he saved us. That's not why he called us. But because of his own purpose and grace. Listen to this. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began. That's when he gave us this grace. This grace in election. While I was preparing to preach, um, and I was reading one of the commentators in giving examples of 
of God's electing grace uh, spoke in terms of um, the choice that was made uh, of Abraham and then used the phrase, and subsequently God chose. And I thought the word subsequent should not even be there. Because he was not doing it in the period of time. Even at the point you get converted, perhaps your brothers and sisters got converted before you. And of course, hopefully your great-great-grandfather got converted before you, and so on. It was not like consequently or subsequently you then also got chosen. No, it happened if we could use the phrase time, at the same time in eternity past. Now, there was no time there because it was an eternal moment. So our salvation is part of the great design of God. And not just in terms of Jesus will die for people generally, but Jesus will then undertake the liability of these people that I have chosen. And therefore, when creation begins, the fall takes place in Genesis chapter 3, and all history begins to unfold even after that. We come to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and ultimately, you being born, whichever family you were born in, whatever tribe you were born in, whatever continent you were born in, all that taking place, all the way to that event by which gospel reached you. And consequently, you prayed to God to save you. All that was according to to plan. All that was according to plan. The seed had been planted long before history even began. You were chosen then. The Apostle Paul ends this part of his thought. I shouldn't say this sentence because I've already told you it's a fairly lengthy sentence, but he ends this part of his thought by speaking about the reason why. What was the purpose? What was the goal? The end plan? What is it he wanted to achieve in choosing us before the world began? What is it? He puts it this way, back to our text. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the goal, holy and blameless. Now remember, we looked at the, the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, and you will notice that in each case when he spoke about them being chosen, he said they were holy to the Lord. They were set apart for the Lord. And the word holiness primarily means an exclusive separation. The root 
of the word holy has to do with cutting into two pieces. That's the root of that word, cutting into two pieces. And you can picture that, therefore, that when we are speaking in terms of the, the holy place, it is a place where, in the tabernacle temple, by the way, it's a place where you don't do your own things. It's exclusively for the Lord's business. Anything else you want to do out there, this is the holy place. And then you have the holy of holies, which is really a phrase that is meant to say the most holy place. In other words, Perhaps you might get away with one or two things out there. But in this place behind the curtains, that's the most separated place of all other places for God alone. And as you know there, only the high priest could go in. And even then, it was only once a year. And even then, he had to carry the annual atoning sacrifice. Otherwise, it was completely shielded off. So it speaks about an exclusive separation for God. And that's precisely what the Lord was doing in choosing us in eternity. It was not choosing so that we can now have our own clean fun and just enjoy ourselves until enjoyment and pleasure and frivolity and everything else is flowing out of our nostrils and ears. No. It is so that we might serve him, that we might worship him, that we may glorify him. He separated us for himself. Another aspect of holiness is, is a moral holiness. And it is particularly captured also in the word blameless. Blameless. Because holy is also ethical. Because God is an ethical being. And therefore, the separation is a separation from sin. A separation to godliness a separation to genuine um, morality that obeys him in all things. When Jesus was given the Great Commission, you remember, one of the things that he specifically stated was the fact that uh, you make disciples of all nations by preaching to them the gospel, remember, and then he says this, that you are to, let me find the actual phrase there, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptizing meaning you are separating them, therefore, into these communities, these entities of the people of God. Now, when they are there, what are you doing them to do to them? You are teaching them, instructing them to observe to obey everything I have commanded you. That's what you are doing. You are making sure that they begin to live a life that pleases him. That's 
why they were chosen. And so, in time, salvation does that. Salvation disconnects us from a previous master. We are now connected to a new master, Jesus Christ. Then there is sanctification, which cleanses us more and more and more so that we are becoming more obedient, more loving, more committed to our Lord Jesus Christ. But then, this holiness and this blamelessness is not totally secured in this life. Even the most holy person among us still sins. There is still a little bit of self in us. But when we finally get to glory, when the process finishes, the glorification happens, then we will love with an un sinning heart. We will be as God wanted us to be. The Apostle Paul refers to this in chapter 5 of Genesis, rather of Ephesians, uh, chapter 5, and um, it's about husbands and wives, but I want you to notice this, uh, especially as we come to verse 27. We come to verse 27. I'll begin from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Notice whom he died for, the church, and gave himself up for her. A very clear choice of whom he was dying for. What's the goal? What's the purpose, the aim? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that refers to the act of regeneration that takes place the moment we get converted. But beyond that, he is <clears throat> sanctifying her. That is through the word, which is an ongoing process. And then, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That she might be holy and blameless. That's basically what he is saying there. That's the goal to which Jesus Christ is presently working. It is in order that when time is over and we arrive in heaven, we are completely exclusively his and there is no iota of sin and we gladly want to serve him with our entire beings this is what election not only was meant to secure but this is what election secured secured it was not just when we make plans we hope that they will be fulfilled. Because there's so much which is out of our control. And therefore, we, we, we hope to visit, we, we plan 
to join that particular um, institution or that particular church and so on. We, we make our plans. But as we know, a lot of times those plans dash into pieces. Not so with God. He plans. He carries out those plans. And there's absolutely nothing outside his gaze. In fact, all things are a result of what he does. And therefore, our holiness, our blamelessness will be utterly secured in eternity. That's where Paul begins as he enters into this rich awe of all the spiritual blessings in Christ. He goes all the way to the beginning. He goes before Genesis 1 verse 1 and he says, wow, this blows my mind that God should have chosen me. Especially when he thinks of how adamant he was to destroy Christians. Remember, to realize that God knew all this. He knew that I would be wreaking havoc in the church. And yet, what I am today is because he chose me before time began and then carried out this great salvation in time. Similarly with us, brethren, if we are going to really appreciate the unsearchable riches of Christ, that's where we need to start. That's where we need to start. Not on the day we became Christians. No. Not even today when you've had a bit of mileage in your Christian life. No. We must go all the way before Genesis 1 verse 1. And here's the reason why it blows your mind. You know that you deserve hell. You know. What is it that differentiates you from your brothers and sisters in the natural sphere who have since already kicked the bucket and gone into hell? What is it? There's nothing special you did. He loved you. He chose you. And that's why you are what you are. Surely, the only response to that kind of love is to love him back. That's it. But we'll come to that later. Let's first drink in what he has done for us. You know, sometimes you find Christians who, instead of rejoicing in this, because it, it, it ought to fill you with such thanksgiving and, and praise to God and adoration that, that you, 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 your praise will be amazing. Instead, they say, no, 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 that's not fair. That's not fair. Hmm? They say, you know, how can God choose some and leave others? How? You go to a bride on her wedding day, clothed in white, in absolute brilliance, 
about to be finally joined to her bridegroom. As she's about to walk through that door in the arm of her father, and you say to her, it's not fair that John chose you. It's not fair. She'll simply smile back at you and say, it's not about fairness. It's about love. It's about love. That's what's happening here. And if a human bridegroom is allowed to choose his bride, why should Jesus, the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, not choose his own bride? He chose us. What an amazing thought. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, This thought blows our minds. That we are what we are today because we were chosen before the world began. Our minds and our hearts say it cannot be. For everything in history, from our forefathers, Adam and Eve, all the way to us today, our very lives point to a well-deserved hell. Why, O oh Lord? Why? Did you even contemplate our salvation, let alone choosing us to be recipients at the price of your own dear son? It's darkness to our intellects but it fills our souls with warmth. A warmth that competes with the warmth of the sun. Almost melting us utterly and completely. Love divine. Indeed, all loves excelling. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.